The Apostle Paul is often caricatured as either a political revolutionary or as a teacher of compliance with the Roman authorities. And often, these perspectives on Paul's approach are influenced by our own attitudes towards the governments of our times. I'm Kenny Innes, and in this episode of Theodisc, I'll be talking with Dr. Jason Myers about how Paul's attempts to help the church navigate life under the imperial rule of Rome can inform our own approach as kingdom witnesses in our context. Jason teaches New Testament at WTC and is also the Associate Professor of Religion at Greensboro College in North Carolina. He received his PhD from Asbury Theological Seminary and is the author of Paul, the Apostle of Obedience and co-author of Voices and Views on Paul with Ben Witherington III, among other titles. Jason is active in both the academy and the church and has preached and taught at several churches in Greensboro, North Carolina. Theodisc aims to invite people into accessible theological conversation to stimulate your thinking and your desire to deepen your understanding of God and faith. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Jason about Paul, politics and pragmatism. Jason, thank you for being on the Theodist podcast. It's great to uh, to speak to you today. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm happy to be here. All the way from North Carolina. It's true. Technology connects us. Makes it easy. <laughs> so um, we're going to have a little talk later about Paul and politics mm-hmm. and pragmatism, maybe. Yeah. And even I've impressed myself with the three Ps um, of that. <laughs> Before we get into that, there's three questions that I want to ask all of our um, all of our first time guests. Yeah. Um, just to get to know you a little bit better. So, rather than finding out, you know, what your the latest cutting edge part of your theological inquiries are, we actually want to know about the things that you return to and that are kind of um, staples in your life. So, the three categories are a book that you return to, a uh, food or a meal that you return to, and a place that you return to. So first one, um, a book, a book that I continually, uh, return to. That's, that's a tough one. Um, if people could see where I'm sitting, uh, there's a lot of books behind me. So that's like asking a, a really difficult question of, of any academic, um, cause there are, are so many. Um, yeah, I think one of the books that I kind of consistently return to, um, in my field is, um, write simply Christian. Um, I think that's probably a book that I probably most comment on and, and recommend to people and one that I think just frames a lot of things uh, in a really, you know, poignant way. Um, the whole Echoes of Eden piece I find myself returning to in, in sermons and conversations uh, about everything from art, culture, beauty, music, um, as a way of kind of grounding the New Testament in um, and the scriptures in, in a world that kind of echoes uh, that that reality. So I think that's that's one of the books that I've just it's like, you know, just a, a warm blanket that you just got to go back to. It's written really well. Uh, it's been around. It's it's kind of stood on its own for the last, I guess, 10 or 15 years. Um, and one of those that I keep returning to. Uh, a meal. Uh, I love food. So this one is, this one's actually might, might be easier than uh, books. Um, I think the food that I consistently return to are tacos, uh, because tacos are a sign that God loves us and wants us to flourish uh, as humans. Um, I think it's the simplicity and the beauty. I could really go off on this topic of it's the sum of the parts and it just comes together uh, in a really, really uh, 
brilliant way. So tacos are, are that meal for me. As, as someone who lived in Texas for a while, I totally affirm that choice. Yeah. And this might be hard for people not from that context to truly appreciate. Uh, but there's just a beauty of the tortilla, the the salsa, the meat coming together and just, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a sign of God's grace to us. And a, a place. Uh, a place, yeah, a place that I frequent. Uh, this is going to sound cliche, but um, libraries. I mean, you might say you're cheating with the first question. Um, but I think libraries, I think some of my favorite memories are just walking stacks um, and, and the art of discovering books, which is harder to do, you know, these days. And it's great that we have everything accessible online and searchable. Uh, but there's just something about being in a library surrounded by books and I don't know, just think about the stories behind the books, you know, like it's easy to see those as um, just like tools that we use to write. But, you know, there's people behind those books. There's stories behind those books. Um, sometimes there's, you know, the rise and fall of someone's, you know, <laughs> academic life or career, um, you know, uh, behind some of those books. And so, yeah, it's just interesting to see those kind of conversation partners uh, together. And you got the smells going on, right? You know, um, it's not high church, but, you know, there's a smell element to a library that just gives you... <laughs> the sense of nostalgia <laughs> there's a there's an instagram account or as the young folks say on the gram on the gram there's an account called 1000 libraries you should check it out oh i need to follow that because you will geek out over it yeah that'd be great yeah i love pictures of you know um all the libraries from famous universities across europe you know, like that's where i want to be <laughs> well jason uh thank you for that now we truly know you nice um so now you have the authority to speak theologically after after that. Oh, yeah, that, that qualifies me for sure. That qualifies you. So today we're going to talk about Paul. And in many ways, I kind of feel sorry for Paul. Um, his words are used to prop up a lot of uh, theologies or ideologies. He gets pushed and pulled around a lot to support different agendas. One way you kind of see this happening is with Paul's political outlook. So you have some people saying that Paul was actually quite politically conservative, and in some senses he was happy to operate within the Roman Empire. Uh, you have others who say that Paul wrote in ways that uh, reveal him to be this kind of political revolutionary who was seeking to undermine or even overthrow the empire. And as an example, you know, when I lived in, in the US, Romans 13 got used an awful lot. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established, etc., <laughs> etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Uh, But how people felt about those verses really depended upon which political party yes. <laughs> was yeah. in power at that time. So their interpretation might flip depending on the result of, of an election. So it feels like our interpretation of Paul in this sense often reflects our own sensibilities and we risk missing the nuance of mm. what Paul Paul's context and the reasons for his instructions to the churches did you come across that as someone who teaches on Paul all the time yeah I think uh anytime you tell someone when they ask you know what your field is what you do for a living and you kind of work through you know religion biblical studies and then Paul depending on what circumstances you're in you know you get a kind of really you know kind of moment of why why that um, and so, yeah, depending on what circles you're in, you're either, you know, um, he's either a hero or a villain. Um, and I think, yeah, a lot of it is, uh, I find my task is kind of reintroducing Paul, um, maybe the Paul that we never knew um, in that sense. And um, sort of saying, you know, kind of like someone meeting uh, a friend of yours, you know, he's really a great guy once you get to know him. 
Uh, you know, it's kind of one of those situations. Uh, but yeah, you see this kind of push and pull. I like that language of of Paul as, you know, the one seeking to kind of blow up the empire um, by, you know, critiquing under every rock and under every uh, passage, some sort of, you know, jibe against the empire. Or um, Paul is really just part of the problem. He's just helping kind of the ideology of empire hum along by uh, making it more palatable right for for other people and he's doing that because he is you know has a lot to gain from it so um and that's reflected as you mentioned through various you know political modern positions that people take and you're right that text kind of ebbs and flows based on you know where you find yourself and who your governing authority might be at the given time um but i do find it interesting even as you just you know rattled that off right it is a quotable text um, you know, and it's, it's always serves as a reminder to me of why has this text, um, amongst all that Paul wrote, uh, kind of risen to the surface. And, and there's a political answer for that. And it's because it's been used in political discourse. Um, yeah, ever since Paul wrote it, and we can, we can go through the history of interpretation from obviously the American revolution, uh, to apartheid in South Africa, to the most recent, uh, kind of American government on immigration status issues. Um, it's a text that gets thrown out a lot without context. Um, and so I think that's where, you know, some of our red flags go up a little bit as interpreters are saying, wait, Paul is working in a specific context. And perhaps one of the first things we can do is realize that Paul's world is very much unlike our world and maybe start there. Yeah, so let's dig into that because I think it's important that we place Paul's words in the context in which he and the church is operating. Um, so could we maybe sketch out that, maybe a rough picture of what it, what the Roman Empire was like and maybe what kind of some of the expectations of citizenry within the empire mm. would be? Yeah, I think, you know, the first thing is it's stating the obvious, however, but Paul does not live in a modern democratic society with votes and representatives and choices, uh, abilities to control the mechanisms or lovers of power. Right? That's not how the Roman Empire works. They're not really interested necessarily in the thoughts and feelings of their citizens. Um you know, that might say a little bit about our own modern political, some of our leaders might not be terribly interested in our thoughts or feelings either. Um, but yeah, to say that Paul is not living in the world that we live in. Um, and that changes, I think, just the options that are available um, for for ancient persons. Um, and so to sketch a little bit of what the Roman Empire was like, that's a, that's a big conversation. But I know, the, I know. Yeah. Um, how do we sum up, you know, what was the Roman Empire? Um but l largely to say, um, you know, the Roman Empire ruled through, you know, autocratic rule. It was the Caesars, um, the emperors uh, that kind of led uh, the charge and what they wanted happened. Um, and the Senate is involved in the first century, but it's really a, kind of a shell of what it used to be in the Republic. Um, you know, much of our modern, you know, societies look back to the Roman Republic as the ideal. I mean, you know, even the U.S. calls itself a republic. Um, and so it's echoing back to there where we're going to have this body that deliberates and makes decisions for the whole. Um, that's kind of, that's very much in the rear view by the time of Paul. Um, there's all these hopes from the senators that they might get back there, but it never really happens. Um, and so within that, Rome, of course, is expanding in the first century. They're conquering um, and they're doing through, they're doing that through war and through bloodshed. 
Um, and that is the kind of brutal reality of Roman rule is that they conquer. And even Augustus will say this, that he established peace via war. Um, and the reason that they are ruling is because they are the most powerful army citizenry you have ever seen. Um, and if needed, they will you know, go to the battlefield and prove it. Um, and so Rome conquers a lot through war, but also just through fear. Um, we have lots of Roman political treaties where groups just lay down their arms and say, you know what? not worth it um let's just let's just submit um key word there that paul's going to use right let's just submit to roman rule and you know cut the cut to the chase (laughs) um pay our taxes and try to be obedient citizens and really from one angle that's all that rome wants they want obedient um citizenry that are going to be peaceful they're going to pay their taxes however exorbitant um and not be a cause for uh concern um, and they're willing, and this is probably one of the more nuanced aspects, to allow people to run their own systems as long as they don't, you know, want to uh, subvert the overall, you know, ideology of, of the empire, that they belong where they belong. Um, and so I think that's, um, again, it's a very rough sketch, mm-hmm. um, but they're willing, like in Judea, to allow um, various locations to have their own rulers, kings, um, political figures, as long as they recognize that they're underneath the pecking order, that Rome sits on top um, and that they're going to be obedient to that. Um, and if they're willing to let that happen, um, it can kind of hum along. Um, I'm reminded of, you know, the great movie um, Life of Brian. Um, there is a double edged nature to this of what has Rome ever done for us? Um, there were some aspects, you know, that did, you know, have some net positive effects. Um, but there was a lot of brutality to go along with that. And always the, there was always that undercurrent of it's fine now, but it could always turn. Um, and there was a lot of evidence for that in the first century. Okay. So, so we have that. And then Paul is speaking to these churches in that, under that imperial context. And yet Paul does seem to communicate that the church belongs or is an alternative society. I was thinking about Philippians 3.20, where it says our citizenship is in heaven. And it's from there that we're expecting a savior, the Lord Christ Jesus, which is in itself, there's loaded language, you know, within that. Um, So if the church are supposed to be citizens of another kingdom, surely that then introduces some kind of tension in how do they navigate the empire in which they're a part of. Yeah, so there's, as you mentioned, there's all this uh, vocabulary, ideas, themes throughout Paul's letters from the term gospel, savior, lord, citizenship, um, uh, triumph in Colossians that are all these terms that were used in the Roman Empire uh, to talk about the emperor um, and his rule. And so there is, I prefer the term kind of juxtaposition um, that Paul is showcasing that there's overlapping realities here. And of course, of course, Paul is telling um, what we believe to be the true story of the world um, that uh, Caesar and the emperors are part of, um, but that he's telling the, the truer, better story there. Um, and so, yeah, as Paul navigates that, you know, he's going to be um, have overlapping contexts um, in that, in this kind of temporal reality. Um, and it's going to cause uh, this idea of subversion that he is, you know, in some ways, giving an alternative account. Um, but I think for Paul and um, the way that he's framing is that, is that Caesar and the emperors have stepped into his territory, not that Paul's actually going after them. Um, Paul says, okay, if we want to talk about rulers, if we want to talk about 
um, the way the world ought to be ordered. If we want to talk about the purpose for which humans are here and, and the cosmos is organized, that story started a long time ago in Genesis. And so Paul says, I kind of have an older story here um, that I'm trying to tell. And of course, this is the story that Israel had always been telling, whether they were under uh, Egyptian rule, Babylonian rule, Greek rule, Roman rule, is that we have the truer story. Um, and setting that within a context um, that had, you know, critique of those ruling ruling powers. We talked about earlier how Romans 13 is so quotable, and there's so much of, of Paul's letters that if you've grown up in the church at all or been around the church much, you just learn these phrases that come through. And I think that has, in some senses, neutralized some of the language that Paul uses. Um, so it's undeniable that he is sometimes adopting the language of the empire or making, like you say, this direct juxtaposition um, with the empire and some of the language that he's using. I think about son of God even yeah that yeah. that term in itself um so maybe we can talk about how paul uses some of that language and and maybe unfamiliarize ourselves with some of it yeah i think we tend to to read as a, a broad uh paintbrush here we tend to read uh the scriptures apolitically like they're just these like religious spiritual texts uh that we go to for inspiration or comfort or kind of guidance um that it's kind of helping us live our lives um, and again, I think what we miss for for all of the ancient world is that those things are all overlapping and interacting. Uh, there is no just religious, just societal, just political domains, but these are all wrapped up together, right? The the emperor is the high priest of the Roman Empire. He's the most significant religious figure. He's in charge of all of religion in the ancient world. Um, and so, yeah, Paul is going to use these terms and he's going to, you know, critique uh, those things that these are not the reality. Uh, Caesar is not Lord. Um, this is not a gospel. Um, this is the true gospel. Um, so I think it's refamiliarizing ourselves with the political connotations of these words and the, the provocativeness of those terms that to declare these things in the first century was to, you know, invite, um, yeah, criticism from others and suspicion uh, from them on what they were doing. And in the first century, I think you have the early Jesus movement on a collision course with empire. That's the language I tend to use that at various places, it's kind of, okay, they're doing something weird over there um, in Judea. They're doing something weird over there in Corinth, but, you know, pull off there. There's not a lot of them. Um, but as we get into the second and third centuries, right, it becomes a pretty uh, big issue where Rome starts to pick on, wait a minute, um, the implications of what they're talking about have direct implications for what we're doing. Um, and so, yeah, Paul's going to use these terms, I think, to subvert um, part of that expectations to to teach his churches uh, on the true nature of, of reality in the world, that Jesus is Lord, um, that his Jesus' kingdom, right, that whole language there, king, king kingdom, and empire, um, are coming on earth as it is in heaven, um, and that there will be a, a reckoning. Yeah, and and it feels like you know Paul has is deeply pastoral in the way that he's mm -hmm. he's writing. Um, there are instances where it feels like Paul is saying, "Just keep if you could keep your heads down, <laughs> yeah, for a while, you know, and just don't don't cause too much provocation." And I know that can that has been taken by some as mm -hmm. the sense of he's kind of complying with empire, but mm -hmm. it feels yeah. also like Paul has 
has bigger fish to fry than the Roman Empire, which is the survival of the church in the middle of all this. Yeah, I think one of the things we often miss is that when we read these texts, we don't read them in uh, in a vacuum. Now, every reader is not the same. And I think one of the pieces we miss is that Paul writes to Jewish groups in Rome, right? Um, and we use the term Gentiles, but Gentiles is a term that Paul uses to talk about people who have been brought to Rome, people who are just not Jewish. Um, they might not be Roman citizens. Um, they might be prisoners of war. They might have been uh, people who were brought to Rome as, as enslaved persons. Um, and so I think one of the things we miss, even for Paul himself, is that these are minority communities. They're minority ethnic communities. They're minority religious communities. Um, and they find themselves uh, caught up um, as a minority culture. Um, they're not the majority. And so I think their navigation of, of those structures is, is particular and so I think what Paul is advising his communities to do is, is to, as you said, keep their heads down, um, not in a sense that we that they're not supposed to call out injustice, but that they don't want the spotlight on them, because when the spotlight gets turned on them, bad things happen. Um, and so I think as we think about this in our modern world, um, it is something that people who are not in the majority have to figure out how to do. How do they navigate a majority culture that, that at times might be indifferent to them? but at times might actually be hostile. Um, certainly we've seen in the news, at least here in America, right, uh, the ways in which uh, minoritized figures, their lives are often caught up in very, um, um, very, uh, yeah, at, at a loss for how to navigate these things when missteps often result in, in death for very, very simple things. Uh, we just had two recent stories in the U.S. of, um, um, African-American young young children knocking on the wrong door and, and, and getting shot um, for that simple misstep, something that we've all done. We've just gone to the wrong house. Um, and so if you want to take that back to the ancient world, how do you navigate a world that at times is, is at best indifferent to who you are and at times is actually violent towards who you are? Um, and so I think this idea of keeping your head down is actually pretty pastoral of the sense of we don't want to cause be a cause for concern because when we are, um, Rome unleashes that power against us and often results in the loss of life. Um, so I think that's one piece we miss. Um, and when I'm ever, whenever I'm teaching on this in, in class or in a church setting, I often want to make the point that as a minoritized community, Paul and his communities, that is something that they can offer <laughs> to those in the majority. I don't think it's something that the majority ought to demand from those groups. Mm -hmm. um, I think what that does is it actually returns agency uh, to those groups is that they can now say, how am I going to respond um, to this environment in which I can't control anything? Um, and I think it's always a, a red flag. It's always a telltale sign on who is asking for that obedience and submission. That's usually your good clue <laughs> on whether or not they're reading Romans 13 wisely. <laughs> And, and and these are things that Paul is writing, I guess, as well from personal experience. I think about his letter to the Thessalonians in which he says to them, you know, just kind of live peaceably, mind your own affairs, you know. Um, and then if you go to Acts, you find the story of what happened um, mm -hmm. after Paul was preaching in the town and what happens to Jason and yeah. and who get kind of in trouble because of what Paul, what they say, the local people say that Paul has been saying that there is another king other yeah. than Caesar. 
<laughs> so, so these are these are real real life situations that yeah. Paul. It's, it's not just a theological idea or a political yeah. mandate for him. This is these are real people that he knows that he's he's trying to help navigate it. Yeah, he and his friends get beat up. You know, um, they get um, yeah, kind of roughed up uh, in various places. That's one form of Roman punishment, right? Is just we're gonna you know, physically assault you uh, and hope that that changes your behavior and your words. Um, you know, it's not always death. Uh, but yeah, I think he knows actual examples of people whose lives are caught up um, in this. Uh, and certainly, I think living as a Jewish person in the Roman world, he's aware of the way uh, that empires respond uh, to minoritized groups whose claims, right, don't fit within the overarching narrative of Rome, right? Like a lot of what Paul is doing, especially in Romans 13, is is just great kind of Jewish political theology. Um, it's Psalm two, right? Uh, why do the nations, um, you know, kind of rage in vain? Um, Yahweh sits on the throne, um, you know, and that Psalm two is political, um, especially uh, when you read it, not in kind of a Davidic sense, but especially in exile, <laughs> how do you read Psalm two underneath Babylonian rule? And I think you see Paul doing something like that in Romans 13, one, uh, sorry, in Romans 13, one through seven, where he's saying, you know, all authorities have been instituted by God. And what that's doing there, you know, we read that, oh yeah, of course, God's in control. But if the emperors are kind of flirting with the idea, to put it mildly, that they're God, uh, that God has a name, as I like to say. All authorities have been instituted by Yahweh. Um, This kind of, you know, from Rome's point of view, uh, an ethnic minority deity that we've conquered, <laughs> uh, Paul saying, no, 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 actually he's the one in control and he's put you in your, in your job. Um, and so in a way, Romans 13 actually um, takes Rome down a peg. Um, and I think we miss that. So Romans 13 for all of its discussions of obedience and submission is actually just as politically subversive by what it's doing by saying the real ruler of this world is not Nero, who's the emperor at the time of Romans, um, it's actually Yahweh. Um, and so that's who we're proclaiming. And so, yeah, it's, it's it's detecting some of those nuances there that this text isn't as simple as just submit and obey. Um, it's, a, it's doing a little bit more there than we imagine. I think it'd be good for us to think about ourselves because we we live in politically contentious times. Paul could be claimed by by different groups of different attitudes. Certainly within the church, we have people who we might say lean left or lean right, um, who might claim Paul for themselves. We also live in cultures, even though we're in a, a our Western culture seems to be quite advanced. There's still plenty of minority groups who are struggling under that. We think about no, notions of empire, and we look at. Are, you know, <laughs> I always think about that um, that meme about you know, are we the baddies? <laughs> yeah. You know, are we participants in this empire? So, so what does Paul have to say to us as a church about how we maybe need to think now about the the political cultures that we live in, the way that we express the kingdom of God in that, and how we can navigate those things in a faithful way? Yeah, I think the first thing that usually comes to mind when I think about how to do this today is that just recognizing that this is actually really, really hard. 
Um, I think we tend to think it's it's simple. Uh, and so some of it is problematizing our categories. Um, the reason I say it's hard is because I think we're, we're kind of in uncharted territory. Um, you know, and I say this as carefully as I can. Did Paul and the early Christians envision the access to political power that most Christians have today? Um, and I think the answer has got to be no. Um, you know, I don't think he imagined um, us being able to to vote. I mean, that, that concept, like, it's just foreign <laughs> um, uh, as much as electricity is, right? Or that we could put someone in power that might uh, align with some of our views. Um, so I think it's to recognize that we find ourselves, like we always have, in kind of uncharted territory, and that requires discernment and wisdom. And those things aren't as easy as two plus two equals four. Um, it requires a lot of hard thinking about what is the right thing to do in this moment. Um, and so I think it's recognizing the difficulty of trying to live as Christians in modern democratic societies. Uh, we got some new problems um, of our own kind of making, right? Um, the success of the early Jesus movements have created the situation in which this world has developed. Um, so I think, yeah, kind of problematizing that is the first one. Uh, I think, secondly, it's going back to some of those kind of foundational convictions of how we read scripture um, and seeing that, um, you know, there's lots on this, but, you know, God is on the side of the oppressed. Um, that oftentimes, as we see throughout scripture, it's the counterintuitive, the lowly, the weak, um, those who uh, need to be liberated uh, that God kind of stands up for. Uh, we see this all the way right from the Exodus, uh, all the way through Jesus' ministry of care for the poor, um, women, outcasts. Um, we see it in Paul as well. Um, and so I think as we try to navigate that, how do we um, kind of have those kind of liberative principles? And I think it goes back to our understanding of power. Um, and I think if there's one thing that I've taken away from how the New Testament and the scriptures talk about power is that power is never used for one one's own benefit, but for the sake of others. Um, and we often call that love or sacrifice, but I think it's another way of talking about power. Um, and I think Jesus kind of shows us that way uh, and how he talks about who he is as the Messiah. The Messiah is not someone who seeks to kind of garner as much power as they can and use it for their own groups to, to kind of uh, belittle or, or beat down other groups. It's how do we use our power for the sake of others? Um, so as I think about the very complex situations we find ourselves in, it's less on what does this have to do to benefit me uh, and how might I improve the lives of others around me who are experiencing some pretty significant uh, difficulties in this life. Um, and so I think as we navigate that, it's it's how do we how are we others focused um, in our politics? Um, uh, this is probably 10 years ago, uh, there was this line in the US about kind of vote against your self-interest. Um, and it's, it's provocative, but I think it, it brings to the surface of how do we use our voice um, for those who don't have it. Um, and that seems to me to be a kind of consistent refrain um, from Genesis to Revelation of that God cares uh, for those who don't have a voice. Um, I think that's, that's some of the kind of practical ways we we, we begin to do that. So maybe I think as we read Paul's letters, it may be less about trying to claim him for our side. Mm -hmm. And maybe we need yeah. to leave space for Paul to confront us in the way that yeah. we um, exercise our power in the context in which we live. 
Yeah, and that's the really slippery part of empire, right? If we want to put it as like an ideology, is that we get kind of brought into the system and then benefit from the system and then become part of it. And we have a, a place and end up holding that because we realize that our own lives are caught up in that. And Paul, you know, is kind of narrating a different story that you are citizens of another kingdom. Um, and that this community that we're forming is an alternative society. It's alternative in the way that it views others, um, people who are not part of the group. <laughs> uh, it's alternative in the way that it views um, difference, that difference is not um, a threat, <laughs> but difference is part of kind of the fabric of this tapestry that God is creating. Um, it's upside down, right? It's it's the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Um, so yeah, I think that's the difficulty of empires. It's going to kind of coax us and applaud us into things that we go, yeah, this is this is good. Um, all the while I was realizing, as you mentioned, wait a minute, we're the baddies in this situation. Um, and yeah, it, it is a, a level of self-awareness to realize that in the text, when we come from the majority, we probably are going to have the most critique from, from the scriptures. Um, you know, when we start to look more like the Egyptians, <laughs> um, you know, that, 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 that's a problem. Um, and so I think that's that self-awareness, but what we need in this instance is other voices because oftentimes we're not going to be telling ourselves that story. Um, we're going to have the nice kind of sanitized version, mm -hmm. right. That we've maybe done some bad things, but overall we're for the good. Um, and what we need are those voices who have been at the receiving end uh, of our empire to say, well, actually, um, we have a story to tell you um, about how it's been going. Um, and I think the humility that we need um, to listen to that is probably necessary uh, for us to be able to read these texts um, throughout the New Testament in the ways in which they were probably read in the first century, which is, um, can you imagine in a Roman community, right? Um, this community that Galatians 3.28 talks about, um, that Romans 12 through 15 talks about, that what does it look like for someone who came to Rome as a prisoner of war uh, to sit alongside a Roman citizen and say, you know, it hasn't all been great. <laughs> um, you know, make Rome great again uh, doesn't really work out for me uh, in the way that it's worked out for you, you know? And I think that's where all these virtues of uh, the Christian life come to play, forgiveness, reconciliation, uh, humility, uh, to be able to say, wow, I didn't realize, um, you know, that this was going on and I'm sorry. Um, and how do I work to make this a more equitable reality? I think that's the real maybe gift that we find ourselves in is that we do have a voice. Um, we do have a way to make changes in our world. And, and throughout our history, Christians have at times <laughs> mobilized uh, to make the world a better place. Um, not in a cliche way, but in a real lived experience. And so I think that's the kind of the clarion call is this great, challenge comes with a great opportunity. Uh, we can change things in our world. Um, and so what are we doing uh, in that? In that, Great. Jason, there's never enough time in these yes. podcasts to talk through everything. So with that said, you'll just need to come back on again later on. But exactly. we, I, and we've only scratched the surface, but thank you for that. I think that's a real provocation for us to approach Paul in a slightly different way. Slightly different. Slightly different. And um maybe see some of the beauty of the the kingdom community that he's envisioning and how we can play our part in it that's good thank you um i think you've earned a taco oh i think so actually uh from where i'm sitting it's actually almost lunchtime so i now have a new idea but thanks again for having me on this has been uh fantastic 
Well, thank you, Jason, for such meaningful insights into Paul's context of empire. Our hope is that this episode will inspire you to dig deeper into the scriptures, seeing its rich context and how it can be applied to our context today. In our next Theodisc episode, Kenny will be chatting with Dr. Matthew Bates, whose recently published book called Why the Gospel is the main topic of their conversation. Matthew Bates is co-founder of our favorite podcast, OnScript, which seeks out in-depth discussions with a wide range of biblical and theological authors about their latest publications. Check out OnScript today. Thank you for listening to episode 16 of Theodisc. Join us for episode 17 with Matthew Bates, who will be answering the question, why the gospel? Bye for now.